0: reading today is Acts 4 1 to 12 which can be found on page 1093 in the church Bibles the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people they were greatly disturbed because the Apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But Benny, who heard the message, believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Cephas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what power or what name did you do this then peter filled with the holy spirit said to them rulers and elders of the people we are here being we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed then know this you and all the people of israel it is by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom he crucified but whom god raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved.
1: Morning, everyone. Morning for those in the building, morning to those who are joining us online. My name is Nathan. We're going to pray as we get started. Pray with me. Well, God, thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for your beautiful word, both of which proclaim your glory to the world, Lord. We ask that our time together this morning would do likewise. Amen. Amen. I like listening to podcasts. Podcasts about all sorts of different things. A couple of weeks ago, I listened to a podcast that had an interview with a Hindu priest. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Uh, particularly to hear just the journey that this man went through in order to become one. His name is Rahil Patel. And one of the things that really blew me away the most as I was listening to his story was the devotion and the commitment that it took in order to become a priest. When he was 25 years old, he was ordained, uh, what they call a swami in Hindu religion. Uh, to do so, he actually had to run away from home at the age of 19, against his, his parents' wishes. And his parents were, were very strict adherents to Hinduism. They were devoted to it, and yet they didn't want him to go. They forbid him from going. Um, and, it, and the reason was because one of the vows he would have to make as a swami... Would be to never see or make contact with his family again. Big deal. And that wasn't all. As a Swami, he would also vow to never own anything, not even the clothes on his back. He'd never have a bank account. He'd never earn a wage. And he would even vow to never even touch money again. He would never uh, father children. He would never marry. Uh, He was not even permitted to look at a woman. The rest of his life. Then there was the training, and it was intense. Uh, off in a remote Indian commune uh, with 800 other people, he would wake at 4, 4.45 in the morning, every morning. He would spend hours in prayer before having breakfast, uh, and that would be followed by hours of intensive study that would often last until 11 o'clock at night. Five times a month, they would fast from water and from food uh, up to 36 hours at a time. Five times a month, even in the the height of summer. Um, And there was no day off. So he would do it seven days a week, and he did it for six straight years before being ordained. And when he was ordained, he got sent into the field. Uh, His denomination in Hinduism uh, boasted a million followers uh, and yet, he was kind of tasked with the job of going to Europe. He was assigned the entire continent. And uh, over 20 years of ministry, he ended up planting 18 Hindu temples across Europe. Pretty impressive. I'm sitting there listening to it, basically in awe of the kind of devotion and the de- dedication that all of that must have taken him. It's remarkable. Of course, it raises a confronting question for the Christian faith. Is Christianity the only true religion? If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we're in the middle of a series. Uh, This is the fifth confronting question that we're asking uh, in the series Confronting Christianity. And I'm sure you've either thought this question, asked this question yourself, or perhaps been asked this question by someone before. Are we really willing to claim that Christianity is the only true religion? That Jesus is the only way? Because what does that say about people like Rahil? Are we really prepared to say that his devotion and his sacrifice is was actually for nothing? How, how are you even able to say that? Like, isn't that arrogant in the extreme to make a suggestion like that? To claim that you've got a monopoly on the truth? You can feel the weight of those questions, right? A weight that really has only gotten heavier the further our culture shifts away from the idea of there being truth. 2016, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. You know, we're kind of living in a post-truth world. In many ways, especially here in the West, we've embraced the promise of pluralism. Now, pluralism is a philosophy that, that really embraces the concept that that all religions have a piece of the truth. Now, that's really the spirit, I think, that sits behind a question like ours for today, is Christianity the only true religion? The implication, of course, being, surely there are other truths that are out there, apart from Christianity, surely. Now, a central claim of pluralism uh, is that every religion is, is basically a response to the grand reality. They're all responses, different responses, and the differences are kind of chalked up as as just cultural expression, different cultural expressions, but they all share one ultimate truth, and this is really what kind of binds them together, and it's their drive to reach beyond, to seek the infinite. That's something they're all doing, and they kind of all share together. And so in the end, no one has a monopoly on the truth because... This grand reality is too big. It's too big. Ultimately, it's unknowable. It's out of reach for any one religion. Just as Scott kind of described this morning, the parable of a a blind man kind of grasping different parts of an elephant. Um, Each of them think they've got something different. In reality, they're all holding just a different part of the same thing. I actually like the way it's demonstrated by Professor Hick, Professor John Hick in his book, The Rainbow of Faiths. Hick is kind of one of the most influential champions of pluralism for the last 40 years. And he uses this sketch to make his point. I want you to, I'm gonna do a quick experiment. Take a look at the picture for me. I want you to, what animal is it that you see? Put your hand up if you see a duck. Some of you are going, oh yeah, I see a duck. Put your hand up if you see a rabbit. All right, looks like the ducks have it. What is it? It's both. It's a duck and a rabbit, actually. You see, it just depends on which way you look at it. They're just different perspectives on the same thing. Just like religious truth argues Hick. You got to admit, right? It's pretty clever. Pretty clever way of explaining things. And and pluralism really does promise that that everyone can be right. It promises to promote the The respect and the dignity of all religious beliefs, whatever they might be, it reduces religious conflict and it increases tolerance. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Now I don't know anyone who would actually label themselves as a pluralist, I'm sure they exist, maybe you do know people who would describe themselves that way. But in my experience, it's far more common for someone to say that they're agnostic. agnostic. And there may well be people here this morning who would say that about themselves, if that's you, welcome to church. Good to have you here. But to be agnostic when it comes to religion is either to say, I don't know, like perhaps I'm still working it out, I don't know, uh, or you might say it stronger, you can't know, no one can know. Functionally speaking, it's actually got a lot of overlap with pluralism, I think, because they both hold to that same kind of promise and claim that really you can't know. You can't know the grand reality. It's safer, it's, it, it, it feels more tolerant and, and less arrogant, and, and it's also a very comfortable place to be, actually. You see, if it is true that no one can know And of course, there's no pressure to have to work anything out, is there? You're off the hook. And in fact, everyone's there, therefore kind of just free to go about living however feels best to them. I mean, that sounds quite attractive, doesn't it? A posture to adopt or a way to approach life, especially at the moment in our culture where where disagreement is often confused with disrespect. I don't know if you've noticed that, uh, that way our kind of society has moved, but we've started treating the two, disagreement and disrespect, almost as if they're the same thing. You can't do one without the other. And um, the truth is, though, that's not the case. They don't have to be the same thing. I like the way that McLaughlin puts it in her chapter on this. She says that actually to disagree with someone shows that you respect them. You respect them enough to, to take their view seriously. You respect and value them enough to, to actually engage on, ma- on things that matter. And obviously, it needs to be done with gentleness and compassion, not a sense of kind of superiority. But unfortunately, these days, we seem to, to have lost the art of disagreeing well, haven't we? I don't know maybe blame the internet <laughs> I'm sure that's part of it but this confusion of kind of equating dis- disagreement with disrespect I think is part of what actually draws us to the promise of pluralism right let's just get rid of disagreement let's there's going to be less conflict more respect more tolerance all good things that approach sounds good okay but pluralism also kind of faces some pretty significant problems the biggest one I think is this, although, although it feels respectful to say that all religions have a piece of the truth, that it's all just a matter of perspective, that's actually not particularly respectful at all to any of the religions, in fact. It's, it's, it's quite the opposite of respectful. You see, in order to say that they're all, they all basically teach the same thing, you've got to sort of wave away the enormous differences that exist between them all. For instance, just as one example, I'm gonna take what you would consider probably one of the most basic fundamental questions there is, like how many gods does your religion worship? A Hindu could say millions, most Buddhists would say none, a Muslim would say one, and a Christian would say one, but in three persons. It's about as basic a question as you can get, right? And yet the answers are wildly different, wildly different. And, and you know, they also differ on the nature of God. They differ on the key scriptures that you need to read, on the key problem with the world, on what salvation looks like, and on how it is you get there. (laughs) And they all think that their answers to those questions are the right answers, right? That, that, That they're really important truths. See, Christianity is not the only religion that claims to have a monopoly on the truth. They all do. And guess what? So does our friend the pluralist. See, they end up having to say, actually, all you religions that think you're the only ones to have found the truth, you haven't. You're wrong. And then to try and harmonize them all, fit them all together, they end up having to reduce them down, boil them down to a single shared trait, right? Responding to the infinite. See, it's actually not as respectful and tolerant as it sounds at first. John Hick actually demonstrates this problem, this very problem with his own illustration, which, thanks for the help, but you see the duck-rabbit optical illusion looks very clever until you realise that in order for it to work, you basically have to reduce ducks and rabbits down to a single part. Rabbit ears drawn to look like a duck bill. Truth is, there's way more to ducks than their bill and way more to rabbits than their ears. And so if you're, if you're willing to take each animal on their own terms as they actually are, it's very clear that they actually actually nothing alike. Do they? Not in reality. They're both dangerously cute, though. And so it, it feels more respectful to say that all religions are basically the same. It's actually the opposite, though. It's, it's dismissive, it's patronising, and it, it fails to take any of them seriously on their own terms. I like the way that uh, John Dixon puts it in A Spectator's Guide to World Religions. He puts it like this. He says, when we say all faiths teach the same things, we are doing a real disservice both to our own brains and to the religions themselves. I can't help feeling that the only way to say such a thing with a straight face is either to remain unaware of what the religions teach, which is perhaps bad for us, or to deliberately minimise their distinctives, which is probably unfair to them. So, where does that leave us? Well, if you want to find the truth, it actually means you need to examine religious claims on their own terms to take them seriously, to look at them in their best light, because they may all be false, but they can't all be true. And if we examine them, we might find one of them is true, and you wouldn't want to miss out on that. So wherever you sit on the spectrum of belief, whether it's Christian, whether it's atheist, whether it's agnostic, whether it's Buddhist, whatever, wherever you're at, make it your aim to examine each claim. There's a bumper sticker for you. Take the time to take a look. Dixon's just actually updated his book on this subject. It's now retitled A Doubter's Guide to World Religions. But one of the things I love about his approach is he, he takes care not just to unpack the five major world religions, but to do it in a way that shows them in their best light, to take them seriously. And I think as, as Christians, we actually need to have done that, not just with the other religions, but with our own as well, right? To know what is compelling about what Christianity claims. We need to know it for ourselves but also so that we can share it with others, right? So that we can actually give the reason for the hope that we have when people ask. And when it comes to the claims of Christianity, it really does start and end with Jesus, doesn't it? There's, there's obviously way more to it than that, but Jesus, he really sit, sits at the very centre of everything. And I like the way that, that Gerald Bray puts it. He says, we assert that in Jesus Christ we have met the God who made us who has delivered us from our sins and who has promised us deliverance from the troubles we suffer in this world. I like it. It's punchy. See, it's Christ at the centre, which is exactly what we hear from Peter in our reading in Acts chapter 4. I hope you've still got it open in front of you. Peter stands before the Jewish leaders and he proclaims this. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is at the heart of the Christian faith. And one way to actually examine some of these claims is is by moving through his major movements. And that actually might be a helpful way for you to remember um, if you have to explain it to someone sometime. His birth his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. I'm going to run through them briefly for us. Firstly, his birth. See, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. The idea of him being the Messiah, the idea of him being Israel's saviour, it wasn't invented by his disciples. It existed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. Eons of Jewish history The Messiah's birth had been promised, it had been prophesied, it had been prayed for. That he would be of royal blood, born to a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. were all separate prophecies that had been spoken hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. From the moment Jesus enters the world, before doing or claiming anything about himself, there are neon signs littered all the way through the Old Testament that point to him being Israel's long-awaited king. didn't come out of nowhere. Secondly, this is made clear through the events of his life, which you can read about in the Gospels. Jesus taught with divine authority. He claimed to forgive sins. He could wield the power of nature. Those were things only God could do. And then he also had the audacity to say things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he goes on to say. Pretty adamant, right? See, the truth is you can't think well of Jesus without also accepting that claim. You can't separate him from it. So he's either right or he's not in his right mind. Those are the only two options. Thirdly, there is obviously a lot to be said about the significance of his death. just want to take a moment to say one thing about it. Consider the agony of the cross. I know we spent some time last week with Scott thinking about that question. The physical pain of crucifixion, definitely. And yet even more than that, the, the kind of relational and spiritual pain of being from his father's side. The prospect is so terrible that it actually reduces Jesus to an anxious mess on the night before he died. And what does he plead to his father? He says, if it is possible, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, the only reason Jesus dies is that next day, was because it was the only way. It was absolutely necessary. But consider this, if the pluralist is right, and every religion has a handle on the truth in some kind of way. It actually renders Jesus' death as needless. It turns out there were other ways. It was possible, right? His father could have taken the cup from him. I mean, that's a, that's a horrific thought, isn't it? thought that Jesus didn't have to die, and yet still did. And what does that end up saying about God? Fourthly, we get to his resurrection. The claim that Jesus rose three days after dying, it's the central claim of the Christian faith, isn't it? Like, everything hangs upon it. It's the proof that Jesus was who he said he was. Without his resurrection... Paul writes to the church in Corinth, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, he says. So if you want to know where the truth of Christianity stands, it starts right here at the resurrection. Examine the resurrection. Because the evidence is extensive. The accounts are early by which I mean the the original written sources are dated to just a few decades after the events took place, which is completely unheard of in the ancient world. And it means that people who were still alive, actually, at the time, who could contribute or challenge the accounts. This isn't some waffly legend, slowly invented, centuries after the event. These accounts are early, which is why they're based off eyewitness testimony. It's not, it's not friend of a 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 friend of I heard someone say. These are people who are actually there and who saw it with their own eyes. We're told 500 people, over 500 people saw Jesus risen. His disciples ate with him, spoke to him, even touched him. And they themselves then went and wrote about it. And curiously, they left out They left in sorry, plenty of embarrassing details, stuff that you would definitely edit out or gloss over if you were making it up or if you were trying to make it sound more believable. The disciples, for instance, are surprised that Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't expecting it. They thought they'd been defeated. They were dejected. They looked dumb. They lacked faith. And then the first people described to have seen Jesus alive were women. Women who at the time were not thought trustworthy enough to testify in court, and yet they're the first ones to testify that it had happened. That's an uncomfortable truth when you're trying to convince people that it had happened, right? It makes it harder to believe. So it's only in there because that's what actually happened. And there are plenty of extra-biblical sources that confirmed details in the Gospels, right? That <coughs> Jesus was a real person, that he was executed by Rome, that his disciples were claiming he'd risen from the dead, and that they worshipped him as God. All of those are verified by major ancient writers, like Tacitus, Josephus, Pliny the Younger. There are, there are ten different extra-biblical sources that attest to Gospel details. And lastly, this is testimony that was excruciating. It cost the disciples everything. All but one of the twelve disciples got executed for holding to the truth of the resurrection. They weren't willing to give it up, even to the point of death. The very ones who were accused of making all this up were willing to die for it, right? But no one dies for a lie. They were actually willing to die precisely because death is no threat when you believe the resurrection is real. So there's five E's of evidence for you. Hopefully you can remember them next week. We'll give you a test. That brings us to Jesus' ascension. Before he ascends to his Father in heaven, having risen from the dead, he issues to his disciples what we have come to know as the Great Commission. And what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all nations, he tells them. Of all nations. He doesn't say, hey, what, you know what, don't worry about the other nations, people outside of Israel, they've got their own religion, they've got their own way to God, let's just focus in here. He says the exact opposite, right? He says everyone needs to know this. Everyone needs to be baptised into my name. They need to be taught what I commanded. Everyone. Whoever they are, wherever they live, whatever culture they belong to, whatever beliefs they were brought up believing, the world needs me. And then that's exactly what we see happen, right? Jesus goes up. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down, and it's, it's like a bomb going off. You can read about it at the start of Acts, the whole book of Acts, in fact, it's a fascinating story. The bomb's going off, just like Peter and John we see in Acts chapter 4. Jesus' disciples are empowered by the Spirit, and they start preaching up a storm. Have a look at verse 13. We, well, we didn't read it, but verse 13, I love it. What does it say? Long page When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. <coughs> unschooled, ordinary men. We've got fishermen who somehow become church planters. And less than 300 years later, the mighty Roman Empire is effectively Christian. And then the Bible becomes the first mass-produced book in history. It's now the most produced book in history. And today, there are more Christians in India than the entire population of Australia. The echo of that bomb is still going off today. birth was expected, his life was divinely unique, his death was necessary, his resurrection a historical reality, and his ascension led to a spiritual explosion. And it it really kind of leaves us with two options. Either it, it, it is true that Jesus is the only way, or else you're left trying to explain how a group of depressed Uneducated disciples somehow managed to fabricate a story that has changed the world. Choose your miracle. As we finish, I want to come back to Rahil for a moment, our Hindu Swami. Despite the 20 years of incredible devotion, over time uh, he actually started feeling uneasy. After so much time, so much study, so much sacrifice to the gods, he never quite found the peace that he was promised. Never found the peace that he was looking for. And it wasn't just him. He noticed, actually, the other swamis as well didn't seem to have that peace either. And he was very good at, at kind of using meditation to, to appear peaceful and calm and indifferent. And yet, underneath, he found himself constantly racked with anxiety and worry and fear, and he, and he just couldn't shake the sense that the decades of dedication actually hadn't hadn't changed him much at all, not deeply, not within. And at the same time, that he was kind of grappling with these doubts. He uh, he found himself oddly fascinated with the symbol of the cross and the word Messiah. He said, when I heard the word Messiah, it just made something inside me jump, and he couldn't describe what it was. It was drawing drawing him to it for some reason, somehow. He actually secretly began reading a Bible and flicking through it, and and actually ended, ended up on a couple of occasions using it to preach and putting it into his Hindu sermons without anyone realising it. And then one day he was walking past a church in central London and uh, the smiling welcomers drew him in. He said that was so loving it was creepy. <laughs> he said the moment he stepped inside though, it felt like a, like a blanket of deep peace had fell upon him. He'd never felt, felt that before. And in his left ear, he heard a silent voice and two simple words. You're home. That was back in 2012. He's now been walking in the faith for 10 years. If you are interested in, in listening to that interview, I encourage you to track it down. It's John Dixon's podcast, <coughs> Undeceptions. He also ended up going and writing a book on it himself called Found by Love. I think what I, what I love most about the story is this sense of him being found. Uh, He ends the book like this. He says, I am beautifully overwhelmed by the person of Jesus. Through him I am now a son of my heavenly father. Though for many years I ran away from him, he kept searching for me and now I am found. He was searching for me all the time. I'm thankful that he found me. See, everyone wants to find the truth. Our world is looking everywhere for it, but the Christian faith is set apart on this. You see, Christianity says we don't find the truth. The truth has found us. That's Jesus. He seeks us out. He came down to us, to live with us, to die for us, and then to rise before us. This truth isn't found, it's not invented or discovered, it's given. Friends, it's given, which is exactly what Peter proclaims. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We have been given this truth. Has it found you yet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world where there's so many different claims to truth, so many different answers being given. Lord, we pray that the truth you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, might cut through the noise, the noise in our own hearts and minds as we try to make sense of this, the noise in our world. Pray, Lord, that we might be those who have been found by your truth, who hang on to the claims of Christianity amidst all the different noise in our world. Lord, we pray for those who are still looking, that you might find them, perhaps even this very day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I thought, uh, given that we'd spent so long this morning kind of Reflecting on the centrality of Jesus to the Christian faith, a great way to actually respond now would be to stand and declare what we believe by saying the Apostles' Creed together. Now, if you're here, but you know, you wouldn't yet consider yourself to be a believer, I want to invite you to stand with everyone else as well. And maybe just, just notice in the Creed, as we say it, uh, just how central Jesus is. You want to do that? Let's stand and say these ancient words together and then we'll finish with a final song. Together I believe in God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died and was buried He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.